Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Dave Hoffman, who's a professor in organizational behavior at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, he's a researcher who's applied extensive research to safety, safety culture. So Dave, really excited to have you with me on the, on the podcast today. Uh, thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. So let's first start. We've t- touched on the topic of safety culture uh, in the past on the podcast. Would love to hear some of your perspectives around what you call multi-level aspects of, of culture. Yeah, so let me um, just to give you just a, your sure. listeners a couple, a little bit of background on me. Um, I am an organizational behavior faculty member, PhD mm-hmm. in organizational psychology. Uh, I've been studying safety, climate, uh, leadership uh, things for about twenty years now, plus twenty years plus. Um, and you know where we think about this multi-level aspect of of safety um, culture mm-hmm. is you know. Culture kind of comes from the top and is enacted from the bottom. So the way I think about culture is you have the espoused culture of, you know, the core values and the, and the key assumptions and then, you know, the org structure and the artifacts as well as the metrics and all of those things that are sort of coming from the top. Uh, and then at the bottom, in the middle of the organization, this culture gets enacted, you know, day sure. in and day out. And I, I've written a little bit with a, a, a friend and colleague uh, by the name of Dove Zohar about these micro decisions that frontline and middle managers face kind of every day. Mm-hmm. And often those micro decisions involve um, competing priorities. Sure. And how the and those managers have some degree of discretion in terms of how they, you know, prioritize one of those priorities, a little redundant, uh, over the other. Sure. And, and over time, as I, as I watch, as an employee, I watch these micro decisions getting made every day. Um, and if, you know, cost is always just a nudge higher than safety or schedule is always a nudge higher than safety. So it always mm-hmm. kind of went out in the end. Then what happens as I watch these decisions is that I kind of get a gestalt impression about what's really valued, expected, rewarded, and supported in the organization. And we call that sort of the enacted culture. Sure. The, uh, and so then you can start thinking about the the enacted culture kind of coming from below, and then it intersects with the espoused culture sort of coming from the top. Mm-hmm. And then that's where in the middle you see the gaps between the espoused and the enacted, enacted culture. And so I think this is something you see very regularly and sometimes I think almost happens. It feels like it's happening unintentionally. Um, I was sharing, I was talking to some a group not long ago and they were talking about recognition and they kept recognizing examples. They had a recognition where people that worked the weekend, people that worked extra hours, which again reinforces productivity. And when it came to reinforcing or recognition around safety, it was thank you for doing that job safely, but really are you recognizing safety or are you just saying you came back and you weren't injured 
uh, but you have no idea what actually happened and how the work actually occurred. Yeah, it, it's sort of the, uh, the absence of an outcome gets recognized as opposed to the presence of proactive behavior that really drove that outcome to be a safe manner. Um, yeah, I see that quite a bit is that, that there's this notion of uh, the absence of, thump, of something means we must have done something well. Right. And it's sort of like, well, maybe, maybe, maybe the absence <laughs> of something, it might be the absence of something means you just got really lucky. Correct. Um, I, I don't think people make that, that distinction very often. But in this instance, you're hearing constantly this message around getting the job, working harder, productivity, not somebody saying, get this job ahead of safety, but it still sends that message if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, at the end of the day, if you want a really safe organization, they should do absolutely nothing. Right. Right? <laughs> um, so there is this you know, notion of there is risk in many of the industries that you've worked in and the industries that I've have am familiar with and where I do my research and so there is this notion of we, we, we there is going to be some risk um, that that you have to sort of really manage um, but I think this notion of um, thinking about safety as a bit of a dynamic non-event is something mm -hmm. that I've, I've spent some time um, thinking about and talking about um, as well. Sure. Um, and this, this actually probably the most recent example um, I talked about this was I was asked to uh, do a presentation to the California Public Utilities mm -hmm. Commission, uh, a public hearing, um, and they called me and asked me to just kick off the day with a, a talk on safety culture. And one of the things that this a model I've been sort of working on and doing some research mm -hmm. on with some of my colleagues is if you think about safety and cybersecurity and, and several other types in the risk domain, they're, they're what we would term a dynamic non-event, which is you work really hard. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot sure. of dynamic behavior going on, but at the end of the day, if, if you're successful, then kind of nothing happens, right? right. If cybersecurity is successful, then you, you did not have a breach. Sure. If safety is successful, then you didn't have an injury. Um, and I know my safety professionals listening would sort of say, well, that's not right. There's a lot of things, <laughs> positive things happening. And I, I'm, I'm just, I, I, I hear you. I can, I can hear the listener saying that. I agree. But if you think from a, you know, a non-safety professional practitioner perspective, yeah. they think about these as dynamic non-events. And so one of the things I highlighted in this safety um, this presentation of the California Public Utilities Commission is it's the middle managers that really have to prioritize, you know, budgets and mm -hmm. funding and all of that sort of thing. And so if I have, and this was the example I used, if I have, you know, if I put a dollar over here in this investment, then I know I'm going to get a dollar, you know, depending on what my internal rate of return is, you know, a dollar 10 back. Sure. Um, and if I spend a dollar on safety or cybersecurity, or in this case, you know, tree trimming or repairing lines, then, then, you know, sort of nothing happens. Okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm left as that manager with the idea of, well, what if I would have spent 95 cents on yeah. safety? Would, would nothing have happened? Yes. And, and then I can put a dollar five over here and, and make a little bit more of my return. Right. And that's where my metrics are. That's where if there's a bonus structure, that's where the bonus structure often is. Um, and, and those performance metrics are 
measured sort of every single you know month, week, quarter, and the safety metrics are a little bit long. So it's really easy for me to just turn this little dial and say, well, let me let me invest ninety five cents over here in safety, put a dollar five over there, nothing happens. It's like, well, maybe I can do ninety two cents <laughs> right. this year, and nothing will happen. And and what what happens then is those managers think that they're actually learning um, by because they're updating their model. They're like, oh, you, what I learned is that you can only spend, you, you only have to spend 92 cents on safety um, or tree trimming or cybersecurity and nothing will happen. And, and I think that's really a false notion of, of learning. Is there something as well there in terms of, you, you mentioned when we talked before in terms of the psychological distance between the decision and the, the outcome. Can you expand maybe a little bit on that on that front? Yeah, so that this is um, some research that uh, came from the, I served on the National Academy of Science Committee uh, that was charged with investigating uh, the BP Deepwater Horizon sure. accident. And, and our charge was to go up until the moment the accident happened, none of the recovery efforts. And one of the things that we did is we, we went to uh, an oil and gas company's um, onshore command center for mm -hmm. offshore drilling. Sure. So I'll, I'll say that onshore command center for offshore drilling for those folks that are driving in the car or something. So this is, you know, in Houston yep. normally. And you, you see, you know, it's a quiet office park, office, and, and you have, you know, seven or eight computer screens in front of you and the person is there just monitoring offshore drilling, the drilling operations that are happening, sure. you know, four, 500 miles off, offshore. And, and I just was struck by that environment. The other thing that we did as part of that um, committee is we, we flew out to an offshore oil rig. And so you could get a little bit of a contrast of, of what does it look like to be on the oil rig thinking about mm -hmm. safety issues versus 400 miles away. Um, and that started me thinking about this notion of in so, uh, social psychology. Mm -hmm. There's a whole body of research on construal level theory. Um, and construal level theory just basically says and how, how psychologically distant are things sure. from you. you know, so, so in that sense, you know, to put some flesh on the bones of what that concept means before your listeners fall asleep, is that um, you, you can think about, right, if I'm in an if I'm in Houston watching drilling operations 400 miles away, that's a very distant, psychologically distant, very distant. Sort of yeah. thing. Where if I'm on the rig, you know, with <laughs> drill pipe and everything, it's, it's very psychologically close. It's very concrete. Yeah. Um, so the, the research shows that, that things that are close up, we, we conceptualize very, in very concrete terms. Um, it's very the sort of how we do things versus the why we do things. And things that are bit, way off in the distance we, we construe at a much more abstract conceptual level. Um, sure. So ethics and values, for example, core values, religious belief, ethics mm -hmm. are often construed at a high level, a very abstract level of these abstract principles. And they're construed abstractly because we want them to sort of converse time so that we can apply them in different situations. Okay. Um, so anyway, I was thinking about that notion of... of um, concrete versus abstractness and uh, you know fast forward now any number of years um, we we finally have a research paper with about five or six studies 
um, where we show that if you construe a work context as psychologically distant, mm -hmm. you actually view safety and and as less of an ethical moral obligation. Mm. Um, and that's in part driven by the by the reduced perception of harm. Sure. Um, so, to put it in in you know real practitioner terms, if I'm watching drilling operations happening 400 or 500 miles away, the the realness of those people and their potential for harm just sort of dissipates in the background. And then you add to that that I communicate with those folks through um, you know chats and really coarse communication modes, not often not even video feeds. And again, those this become faceless people and, uh, and I'm less likely to, uh, to view ethics as a moral obligation. So what are some strategies organizations can drive to address that element? Because I, I could see that as well happening. You talked about the onshore command center. Imagine it can also happen at the C-suite level. The more you're removed from from the front line, you can, you can feel further removed. Uh, what are some strategies organizations can do to try to mitigate on that? This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, de develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. Yeah, I think you're exactly right that um, there are any number of different ways in which psychological distance can be operationalized. And so in the studies, actually, one of the ways in which we operationalized it, just to give you a sense of this. So, so one was we had um, offshore drillers view aerial view pictures, photos of their drilling rigs versus photos of the drill floor. Sure. Um, there were no people in any of the photos because we didn't want to confound this notion of potential personal, personal harm. And what we did is just randomly assign people to the aerial photos. You know, I see a helicopter view sure. versus a, 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 a drill floor view. And we ask them to what extent are these 25 safety behaviors of moral, ethical, you know, sort of responsibility. Sure. We found significant differences. But we also operationalized that by having a group of nurses um, tell us what city they worked in. Um, and then we coded into the survey, the subsequent survey, either they were the, um, a manager in a hospital in the city, which they said they sure. worked in, um, or we sort of randomly picked Miami as a place that's pretty far away from most everything, um, except, I guess, Fort Lauderdale. Um, <laughs> but we, we can control for that in the study. Uh, and then we said, ah, imagine you're a, an administrator in a hospital in Miami. Mm -hmm. Now think about the amount of potential harm that could happen and the extent to which these safety behaviors are moral sure. and ethical obligations. And we find that if you're thinking about a, being an administrator in a hospital that's you know, a thousand miles away, you, you think about it a, a bit different way. Um, research has also shown that organizational level, as you mm -hmm. go up management different levels, you think about things in a more abstract way. So you're right in the sense that, um, that leaders often construe things in a little bit more abstract way. Um, there's a couple of implications for that. 
Um, first is that they few, they see um, tighter connections between things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this notion of, well, if you do things safe, then you're also going to be highly productive. And, and I think over, you know, that these two things can go sure. together. Yep. Safety and quality, for example, go together. Can go together, yep. And I would say sort of over time, um, that's, I think there is some truth to that. Yep. But day in and day out. And so the leaders see these things, these concepts as very abstract, which means they can see tighter inner, inner relationships to these things. But then at the frontline managers, they're faced with a real concrete decision this afternoon of we can either pause for three hours to try to get this part, or we can kind of do a makeshift thing and be back up in 15 minutes. And they see those things competing. Um, So what, what do managers do? What do they need to do in terms of practical implications? I think first they need to continually remind themselves of, of what the work really looks like on the, on the front lines. Um, and, and I don't mean remind themselves like remember when they did it 15 years ago sure. or 20 years ago. Uh, they need to get some exposure to how is it done now right. in a much more dynamic, competitive, cost pressure environment than maybe they faced uh, 10 or 15 years ago when they did it. Um, and, and part of it is, is reminding themselves of that. I think day in and day out, um, you know, a symbolic reminder of the of the harm that can potentially construe uh, can can occur. Um, you know, really thinking about your your employees and getting to know. You know, you can't get to know everybody mm-hmm. in your organization if you run a better organization. But boy, you know, to the extent that you can really know uh, sure. some people on the you know frontline supervisors who really are facing this harm so they, they become real people and you mm-hmm. know something about their families and their children so that you think about oh if something bad happens that's that's jim yeah. or sue that's not just some sort of random person that i that i have you know passed in you know on the plant side at some point that that element of personalization i think is i remember on the in the customer experience space people would often say if you put people actual pictures in a call center as an example of your customers and you remember who am I here for. I've seen some organizations in the safety space do similar areas where they, they put actual pictures of team members doing the work and also encourage more, more regular visits to frontline work to understand, to listen, to understand how their work impacts a perfect day for them so they get more proximity. Yeah, there, yeah, there's some research where they, gave, they have given healthcare professionals mm-hmm. You know, who, who are reading, you know, radiology, for example, or something similar to that, you know, a kind of a, a distant person that's just kind of sitting in an office reading x-rays sure. or looking at blood samples or something, a blood test. And what they did is they actually randomly attached a photo of the patient um, to the file. Mm. Uh, and when they attached the photo the, to the patient, the, the, the read was more accurate uh, because it became a real, a real person. Um, so I, I think all of those things are, are really good. We actually open and close this, uh, this research paper with um, the, the, well, the Canadian Iron Ring, which you may know something about, the Iron Ring, the ceremony of the Iron Ring for engineers, yes. yeah. um, is that when you become a licensed engineer in, in, um, in Canada, you go through this Iron Ring ceremony and you wear a little um, ring on your, uh, I guess your right hand little finger, yep. I think, uh, to remind you of the ethical, moral responsibility of, of a professional engineer. 
Um, there's an apocryphal story about those being made from the bridge collapse in Montreal. Yes. Turns out that's not really true. Um, but, <laughs> maybe once but, upon a time it was true. <laughs> they ran so. out of metal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that notion of this constant reminder of decisions right. that I make at the quote unquote drafting table have downstream consequences. I think anything that you can do to make sure that that abstract notion becomes is, is, is always salient and particularly mm -hmm. around the potential for harm uh, would be beneficial. And if I touch on the example that you shared before in terms of the middle manager making a trade-off, I take five cents, maybe yeah. I take seven cents, an extra two cents. What are some strategies to, to mitigate that? Because um, it, it sounds like with just being the, at least the, the story in the news around the, the incident in uh, Palestine, uh, around the derailment, it sounds like it was, we took, we took, we took until eventually the budgets run, run out and, and something went too far. Obviously, we don't know yet the full conclusions, but the early signs seem to be that the budgets kept being cut until it was too much. Yep, I, I think that's I, I think that's a pretty common story, actually, unfortunately. Um, and I think it's common in part because these no, the the dynamic non-events are these abstract phenomenon that are easy to that are hard to imagine and sure. therefore easy to discount the likelihood that something bad's going to happen versus a very concrete metric that's that you're held accountable for every quarter for delivering or even shorter on delivering the product. Um, so a, a couple things come to mind. I mean, I wish I had this, this is, you know, my next <laughs> 10 years of research to try to sort this out. Um, but I think the first thing that I would recommend is to, to understand the difference between what I would call real learning and superstitious learning. Sure. Um, now, Real learning involves the reduction of uncertainty, you know, mm -hmm. that you actually ha were missing information, some degree of uncertainty, and that uncertainty has been re removed in some substantive way. Sure. Uh, superstitious learning is probably not that familiar. Okay, that definition of real learning, I think people are like, well, yeah, duh, that makes sense. Okay, but, but what is superstitious learning? Superstitious learning goes all the way back to, you know, Pavlovian psychology. Mm -hmm. um, and superstitious is learning is defined as an incorrect pairing of a stimulus and response. Okay. okay. So when I take that five cents away from the dollar and nothing happens, I conclude that I have learned that I can spend 95 sure. cents and nothing happens. And it's like, no, you have not <laughs> reduced any uncertainty in that equation. Yeah. And it's very difficult to do that because, um, you know, safety, those kinds of things, like you cut the training budget for, you know, whatever safety protocol or, you know, you, you cut 10% of your tree trimmers from a, a utility company, you know, that, that decision is not going to manifest into demonstrative risk for sometimes many, many years. Yes. Um, and by that point, all the middle managers are off into different jobs and nobody remembers, you know, so so you can't really connect the two. So first, I, I would want to say, like, to what extent are you really learning and do you understand what learning really means as opposed to just getting lucky? Right. And so a lot of times you're cutting these budgets and you're just sort of it, it's just there's a really long feedback cycle mm -hmm. and it's fuzzy. 
And so nothing's happened, even though the risk is continuing to accrue. Um, but you're concluding that you're learning that you don't need to spend as much on safety and nothing will happen. Sure. So, so the first thing I think is just sort of really for people to grapple with this notion of if I cut this budget, am I really learning anything given mm -hmm. the flow feedback cycles, the stochastic nature of that, the fuzziness of the criteria, et cetera. So there's a lot of ways in which you're not really learning. I think the second thing goes to to this notion of a really strong safety culture throughout the organization. Um, another piece of research that mm -hmm. was done by uh, my friend Dov Zohar with a, another one of his colleagues actually showed that if you have a really strong, uh, strongly agreed upon and strong safety culture at the top of the organization, then it actually reduces the amount of discretion that middle managers um, sure enact with respect to safety. So safety becomes kind of a non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where it loops us back to the beginning of our conversation around safety culture, um, is that if that you have a really strongly held view at the top of the organization that safety is, is, is an extremely important criteria, um, and that's strongly held, symbolically reinforced, uh, talked about, communicated about, invested in, so people see not only the words, but the actions behind the words, the money behind the words, and that my job is designed to be safe, my manager is talking about safety, then all of a sudden it reduces the amount of perceived discretion that I have. And so I'm going to be less likely to take that five cents and move it from, from the dynamic non-event into the other criteria. Um, so I would, I mean, the two things that come to mind is really getting really clear on what sort of organizational learning yeah. means. And, and then secondly, uh, and then forcing people to justify it. Like, mm -hmm. oh, if you're going to cut the budget this year um, and you don't think it's going to be risky, how do you know? Right. Like, you've got to give me the criteria, the data that you're using, the assumptions you're making. And then secondly, um, I think just creating that really strong cult safety culture throughout the organization mm -hmm. to reduce the amount of discretion that those frontline and middle managers perceive that they have with respect to safety. I think it's an important point because what you mentioned, even at the top management team, I've seen very mature organizations where even when somebody say, okay, I could save X amount of money in my budget, finance will say, well, what would be the impact on safety? Like, will it help you think through? Because sometimes the impact is, it's not just cutting the safety budget, it's not cutting the training budget, it's not just taking your PPE out. Sometimes, like I hear now of examples of in 2008, we didn't recruit for two years, and as a result, we lost some learnings as people retired because we didn't create the next generation. And it's, we're now 14 years later, and people are starting to realize the effect of a hiring freeze that happened in 2008. And so it's really trying to think about what could go wrong from these pieces that are not necessarily a safety budget. This was just a recruiting budget, promotion budgets um, in an organization. I, I, that's, that, that is a great series of questions um, that would go a long way to, to fleshing these out. Um, and then trying to make, you know, in reverse, connect some of those dots so, so you do learn from them. To so say, oh, we did cut that training budget, and now, you know, five years later or six years later, when we've got to expand operations, we don't have people trained up to do it. And this needs to be a lesson learned. We need to do an after-action review. We need Correct. to file some, uh, some learnings that are with the senior managers so that we can take action on it and continue to move forward positively. Absolutely. So 
Dave, thank you so much for sharing those examples. I think they're very powerful examples of safety culture, the role of leaders, and how how you really instill those right decisions, um, both both in terms of the concept of the proximity you talked about in terms of the onshore, offshore locations, but also in terms of the role of leaders and the decisions that they're making day in and day out. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Excellent. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy. Distinguish yourself from the pack. Grow your success. Capture the hearts and minds of your teams. Elevate your safety. Like every successful athlete, top leaders continuously invest in their safety leadership with an expert coach to boost safety performance. Begin your journey at execsafetycoach.com. Come back in two weeks for the next episode with your host, Eric Makrowski. This podcast is powered by Propolo Consulting.